This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Hello, everyone. We hope we are giving you a little distraction from life during this crazy time. Thanks for sticking with us through episode three of season three. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa. My day job is an investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond, Virginia. And my passion is this podcast. This week, we are turning back the clock on the week of May 4th through the 10th. Most professional sports have figures regarded as legends. Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan, Richard Petty, Babe Ruth. A first and last name sometimes engraved on the sports championship trophy. But for our next segment, an icon known by just one name. Secretariat. A legend, true legend, a living legend. And it was on May 5th, 1973, that Big Red, as he was known, won the first leg of horse racing's most coveted prize, the Triple Crown. And he did it on the most famous track of them all, Churchill Downs. Secretariat, Secretariat on the outside to take the lead. Sam holding in second. It's Secretariat moving away. He has it by two and a half. Secretariat won the Kentucky Derby. Yet another champion born right here in Virginia. But the legend began in a humble foaling shed in the pasture of the Meadow Stables in Caroline County, an area we now know as Meadow Event Park where the Virginia State Fair is held in the fall. He was royalty from the get-go. His sire, bull ruler, top stallion in the country, his dam or mother, something royal. He was about her 17th or 18th foal that she had, and I think her next to last one. When he was born, first thing that the gentleman who delivered him said, wow, there's a whopper, because he was so big. The vet who came and checked him over, she's the first one to talk about the perfect confirmation or physique that Secretariat had. She said that right the minute she saw him that he was put together so correctly. He had beautiful straight legs, a beautiful head, and he was as red as fire. That's Leanne Layden, the Secretariat tourism manager and historian at the Meadow Event Park. an equine enthusiast all her life. Layden also authored an award-winning book on the Meadow Stables, which raised the greatest racehorse to ever live. But as we often do on how we got here, we need to head down a rabbit hole on how the legend of Secretariat began. And it goes all the way back into the late 1800s with a man by the name of Christopher Chenery. 
Mr. Chinnery was born in 1886, and he grew up in Ashland, which is just a few miles away from the meadow. He grew up very poor, but he became a self-made millionaire just before the Great Depression. And in 1936, he came back to his ancestral home place, the meadow, and purchased it with the intent of transforming what was now a rundown old farm into a thoroughbred racing stable. He ends up, even though everybody said he was crazy, that uh, this was the middle of nowhere, he needed to be in Kentucky. But he knew Virginia's horse history, and believe it or not, Caroline County that we're in was called the cradle of American horse racing. And the Meadow Stable produced some incredible racehorses for decades. Eventually, Chenery became ill. And in 1968, the board of the stable asked Chenery's daughter, Penny, to take over. Penny's a horsewoman, came very close, just a couple of months shy of earning her MBA at Columbia University. One of 20 women in a class of 800. She had a lot of determination too. The rest of the family wanted Penny to sell the farm. And Penny said, as long as Dad is alive, we owe it to him to continue his dream and to keep racing the horses. Penny would commute from Colorado to Caroline, and things were not going very well. Then in 1971, the family said, you've had three years to do this, and it's not working. The farm is still losing money. We're going to sell the farm, sell all the horses, and get out of this racing business. But a young horse would save the day, and the farm. We had an unlikely hero who was not Secretariat, and that was a horse named Reva Ridge. As a two-year-old colt in 1971, Reva won $500,000, and he saved Meta Stable. He got the farm out of debt. Penny's family changed their tune. Not only would Reva Ridge save the farm, he would go on to win the Kentucky Derby in 1972. He also won the Belmont, so he won two-thirds of the Triple Crown in 1972. But not many people know about him, and that's because Secretariat burst onto the scene. Before we get to the historic year of 1973 for Secretariat, you have to hear the story of his early days at Meadow Stables and how another stable almost raised the legend, his future coming down to the flip of a coin. Mr. Chinnery had a gentleman's agreement with the owner of Secretariat's sire or father, that was Bull Ruler, the top thoroughbred stallion in the country. It would be a coin toss instead of paying a stud fee to Bull Ruler. His owner wanted to breed him to the Meadow Mares because they were so outstanding. So he and Mr. Chinnery would flip a coin, and whoever won the coin toss got first dibs on the fold from one of two Meadow Mares. Well, Penny kept that going after Mr. Chinnery went into the hospital. And so there was a coin toss. She lost the coin toss to Bull Ruler's owner, but the horse that he ended up with ended up being a dud, and Penny ends up with Secretariat the greatest racehorse of all time. Imagine it, you come out on the losing end of this pricey coin toss and the world basically hands you Secretariat. It was March, 1970. A funny thing, when Penny first saw him and despite what the Disney movie said, she was not here the night that Secretariat was born. When she came in from Denver and she saw him, 
First thing she said was, wow. And the next thing was, he's too pretty to be any good. As Secretariat grew up, he kept everyone on their toes. The grooms that handled Secretariat always said that he was big, he was spirited, he was mischievous, he was rambunct, not mean, but very mischievous, and that you always had to stay two jumps ahead of him. You see, one time, he escaped his groomer. Well, you don't have to be a horse person to know a loose horse, especially a young colt running around, is a pretty scary thing. It's one thing to have a horse running loose on the farm, but things quickly escalated. So he is leading the grooms on a merry chase, and then he thought, wouldn't it be more fun to run out the front gate and run up Route 30 all on his own? So our future Triple Crown winner is running free as a bird up Route 30. Yet another unlikely hero would emerge at this point in our story, but this one had two legs instead of four. A man driving a truck from a local sawmill sees this red colt running up Route 30, and he stops his truck in the middle of the road and catches Secretariat and holds him until those poor grooms get there. That little escapade happened in 1971. Penny Chinnery didn't find out about it until 2007. Training at Meadow Stable started for the horses when they were about 18 months. Secretariat trained there from September to December of 1971. This is the original starter's bell from the Meadow training track. That bell taught Secretariat in Riva Ridge how to jump out of the starting gate. His time was over in Caroline but he was taken to Florida to start his racing career. And he wasn't necessarily a star from the start. At first, he wasn't showing anybody anything on the track. He was kind of lazy. It took him a while to, and he's two years old. They, they, they don't know, you know that much what they're doing, but it, only, it took him just a couple of races and he got the idea and then started to really surprise everybody. That brings us back to 1973, the year of Secretariat. Jump to Churchill Downs on May 5th, the now three-year-old Secretariat takes on the first leg of the Triple Crown. Secretariat, Secretariat on the outside to take the lead. Jam holding in second. It's Secretariat moving away, he has it by two and a half. They say the Derby's the most exciting two minutes in all of sports. Secretariat made it the most exciting one minute 59 and two-fifths seconds in all of sports. It's a track record that still stands today. Crazy. Next up, the Preakness Stakes at Pimlico in Baltimore. Here's your obligatory I'm from Maryland line. Colton is shaking his head. That's it. That's the line. <laughs> Let's get to the Preakness. There's a little side story to that. He wins the race, but he didn't get the track record for 39 years. The electronic teletimer malfunctioned and clocked him two full seconds slower than the stopwatches got him. 
The stopwatch has caught him at a new track record, a minute 53 and two-fifths seconds. Well, Penny fought that, testament to her determination, and would go before the Maryland Racing Commission, and they kept turning her down. And then in 2012, a digital video, she proved that he ran the Preakness in a minute 53 flat, faster than anybody knew. So he got that record. Are you starting to see a trend here? There was one race standing between Secretariat and becoming the first Triple Crown winner since 1948. The Belmont Stakes at Belmont Park in New York. This is what everybody remembers. They're in the stretch. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. He wins the race by 31 lengths, almost an eighth of a mile ahead of the rest of the field. And he smashes the track record. He runs a mile and a half in two minutes, 24 seconds flat, almost three full seconds ahead of the track record. Who owned this most magnificent animal who has today run the most sensational Belmont stake in the history of this race. Not only would he break the track record for the mile-and-a-half Belmont Stakes, Secretariat refused to stop after crossing the finish line. He didn't slow down when Ronnie stood up in the stirrups after they crossed the finish line, and they clocked him at a mile and five-eighths. He had broken the track record for another eighth of a mile going, a mile and five-eighths. So just, he was unstoppable. He loved to run. He absolutely loved to run. And Ronnie has said, his jockey, that the Belmont, he had no idea Secretary was gonna run like that. And he literally was just a passenger. When he was running at top speed, he was going probably close to 45 miles an hour. And you think you've got a 100 pound jockey sitting on something going 45 miles an hour that really doesn't want to stop. <laughs> so. Once Secretariat finally stopped, he was taken to the winner's circle. Not just the winner of the Belmont Stakes, but the winner of the Triple Crown. So here we are going on 101 years of the Triple Crown. And that's the pinnacle of horse racing. In that 100 years of the Triple Crown, only 13 horses have won it. And of those 13 horses, in a hundred years, only one broke every track record, and that was Secretariat. And here we are going on 47 years after he won the Triple Crown in 73, and nobody has ever touched his record, not before 1973 and not after 1973. Much of Secretariat's dominance is credited to his physique, that thoroughbred structure built to perfection. His stride was measured at 25 feet that he could cover in a single bound. Only Man of War, the great Man of War of the 20s, had a longer measured stride at 28 feet. Think about that. A single bound at full speed would cover 25 feet. To give you some perspective, the average giraffe is only 15 to 20 feet tall, and their longest strides are only 15 feet in the Belmont where Secretary was fully stretched out in that mile and a half. His stride was more like 27 feet. And we have stride markers here at the Meadow that you can walk and just get an idea of what an incredible distance that is. But the true power within Secretariat was just that, within him. 
And then they found out after he died in 1989 that the horse they call the Tremendous Machine had a tremendous engine, and that was his heart. The average thoroughbred heart, it weighs eight to 10 pounds. Secretariat's perfectly normal heart weighed 22 pounds. Nobody has ever measured one as large as that. And not only did his physique urge him to victory, those who worked with him said Secretariat had a fierce will to win. His exercise rider, Charlie Davis, told us that Secretariat had lost a couple of races. He had been sick when he lost a couple of races. He hated to lose. And when he found out he wasn't going in the winner's circle, he went back into his stall and turned away from everybody and sulked. And then Charlie said the next race, and it happened a couple of times, that Secretariat ran, he would set a new track record. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner. Secretariat would stud, basically relax and reproduce, for 16 years in Kentucky before he died in October of 1989. An amazing, unbelievable performance by this miracle horse. Not only do his records seem to be written in stone, but his bloodlines are continuing on 47 years after his triple crown. They are dominating racing today. If you just look at the Derby last year, you have 20 horses running in the Derby. 17 of them were descendants of Secretariat. And they're not just filling out the field. Many of these descendants are winning. The last two Triple Crown victors, American Pharaoh and Justify, come from Secretariat's line. In 1973, Secretariat graced the covers of Time Magazine, Newsweek, even Sports Illustrated, ESPN voted on the top 50 athletes of the 20th century. Coming in at number 35, the only athlete on the list with four legs. Secretariat left his birthplace of Meadow Stables in Caroline County in 1972 and never returned. But on May 5th, 1973, his legend was just getting started on the hallowed grounds of Churchill Downs. Track records and bloodlines unbroken to this day. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. The state of Virginia is the mother of presidents. It holds the title with eight men born in the Commonwealth going on to become commander-in-chief. But we don't often hear much about the wives of these men, the first ladies, as they've been dubbed. And on May 4th, 1820, Julia Gardner was born, not here in Virginia, in New York. 
But her husband's roots in the Old Dominion would bring this northern girl to love the traditions and beliefs of the South. Many wouldn't know Julia Gardner by her maiden name. She's better known as Julia Tyler, the darling of the Capitol and the second wife of the nation's 10th president, John Tyler. Julia came from a very wealthy New York family that often spent winters in Washington, D.C. for what was called social season. Think fancy aristocrats getting together to party. The young girl's beauty and practiced aristocratic charm attracted some of the most powerful men of the time, including then-congressman and future president Millard Fillmore. But her heart would be tied to Tyler. The National First Lady's Library says that John Tyler proposed to Julia in 1843, just five months after his first wife died. Julia declined but the pair continued to make public appearances. One thing that raised eyebrows about the relationship, the couple's difference in age. Not five years, not 10, not 20, not 25, but 30 years. Tyler was 54, Julia, 24. It is the 1840s after all, different time, different era. But the rejected proposal in 1843 wouldn't stop John Tyler's attempt the following year. It came during the most unlikely of times, on board the U.S. Navy's steam frigate, the USS Princeton. In February of 1844, President John Tyler and 400 others were cruising in the Princeton down the Potomac River. Julia, her wealthy father and sister, were also on board. The Princeton was a new warship that carried the two largest guns in the Navy arsenal. The enormous weapons were called the Oregon and the Peacemaker, the latter weighing some 27,000 pounds. 12-inch cannons that could fire a 225-pound cannonball five miles, using the force of 50 pounds of gunpowder to send the iron to the sky. The ship's captain wanted to demonstrate the Navy's power, but the Peacemaker's co-designer argued, saying it hadn't been sufficiently tested. Nonetheless, the cannons were fired twice. Each eardrum-straining blast met with applause from onlookers. Most people then went below deck to enjoy fine food and drink. But the Secretary of War wanted those cannons to be fired a third time near Mount Vernon to honor George Washington. The captain gave the order to fire, setting off the worst peacetime disaster of its time. The peacemaker exploded. Creating a gruesome spectacle, heads 
limbs and unidentifiable pieces of humans were blown across the ship, creating a bloody mess in the blink of an eye. Several people were killed instantly, including Tyler's Secretary of State, Secretary of the Navy, and Julia's father. The president himself was halfway up the ladder to the main deck when the blast rattled the ship, but he was unharmed. When Julia learned her father was one of the casualties, she fainted from shock and grief. The once comfortable cruise, now a twisted tragedy. When the Princeton finally docked, the president whisked Julia away and comforted her, finally winning her consent to marry. At the time, it was a secret engagement, because no matter the time period, getting engaged in the immediate aftermath of the grisly death of a loved one doesn't have the best optics, especially for a president who very nearly just died. Nonetheless, the pair married in June of 1844 in a small ceremony in New York. John Tyler became the first president to marry while in office. And by small ceremony, I mean small. There were only 12 guests. This elopement of sorts was credited to the family's mourning following the Princeton disaster. The public fascination with the new First Lady was incredible. As thousands turned out to try to get a look at the young bride in Philadelphia and Baltimore in the days following the wedding, the newlyweds came to Virginia on July 4th that year, staying in a honeymoon cottage at modern-day Fort Monroe in Hampton. After two days there, they traveled to the president's new plantation home known as Sherwood Forest in Charles City County, which you can still visit today. They returned to D.C. in August of 1844. Julia Tyler knew her tenure as First Lady would be brief. She only had one social season in the nation's capital to show off, but she took full advantage. She's the first known First Lady to have publicly danced taking part in a newfound waltz. The religious press in D.C. at the time was not a fan of hers because of the closeness of this waltz dancing, as well as the abundant supply of champagne she served to guests. Her going away party for herself and President Tyler was held in February of 1845. Known as the Grand Finale Ball, 3,000 people were invited, and continuous dance music was played while some 96 bottles of bubbly were enjoyed. Remember, it's 1845. That's a lot. A tradition you know well that continues to this day is often credited to Julia Tyler. The anthem, Hail to the Chief, had been played for the arrival of former presidents, 
but she ordered it to be performed to announce every arrival of her husband. The tradition continued when her successor chose to do the same. The young Tyler also wanted her face widely shown around the country and allowed an engraving to be made of her titled The President's Bride. It was mass produced and commercially sold. No other First Lady had sat down to have her photograph taken, but Julia became the first when she posed in a studio in New York. That photograph, unlike the engraving, was not mass produced. In fact, it was only rediscovered in the Library of Congress in 1987 and published for the first time in 1990. Julia and John returned to Virginia after his presidential term, living at Sherwood Forest, steeped in the traditions of the South. Remember, this is just before the Civil War, and slavery was alive and well in Virginia. In fact, several British women actually pleaded with women of the American South to help end the practice of slavery. And Julia Tyler, the former First Lady, took it upon herself to respond. In her only published writing in 1853, she appears to be giving a subtle defense to what she calls the peculiar institution. She wrote that slave families were given a choice on whether or not to join Christian churches and that slave owners tried not to sell individual members of a slave family, all of which is not true. But the point she was trying to make was that the British nobility had no right to tell another country what to do. Remember, the American Revolution ended just 70 years prior. Tyler's essay was published in Richmond, New York, and even the monthly magazine Southern Literary Messenger. Pose magazine, about 70 years later. Remember, episode one, season three? Though she was raised in the North in New York, there were slaves on her family's island before the practice was outlawed. So the morality of owning another human being matched her husband's views prior to their marriage. John Tyler advocated for secession and was a member of the Confederacy's Provisional Congress, but he died from a stroke in Richmond's Exchange Hotel in 1862, just days after the Congress first convened. His coffin was not covered with the American flag, but the flag representing the South. Confederate President Jefferson Davis mourned his death. Julia Tyler spent some of the war years in New York and Washington, D.C., but the fall of the Confederacy left her with a fraction of what she had financially before the country was split in two. She could no longer afford her aristocratic ways in D.C. and was forced to return to Sherwood Forest in 1876, which was nearly sold before her arrival. When Congress voted to give Mary Lincoln a $3,000 pension in 1870, Tyler used that as a precedent to try to get financial help of her own. But it wasn't going to be easy convincing lawmakers to give federal money to a former Confederate. It wasn't until 1880 that Congress voted to give Julia Tyler an annual pension of $1,200, less than half of Mary Lincoln's. 
But when President Garfield was assassinated in late 1881, all four presidential widows, Garfield, Lincoln, Polk, and Tyler, were awarded the same annual amount of $5,000 starting in 1882. Side note, a federal law providing automatic pensions for presidential widows wasn't enacted until 1958. In 1882, Julia Tyler left Sherwood Forest, leasing a home in Richmond's Churchill neighborhood before finding a home along Grace and 8th Streets, right across the street from her Catholic church, St. Peter's Cathedral. Living her last days comfortably in Richmond, Julia Tyler died in 1889 at the age of 69 in the same place as her husband, the Exchange Hotel, with the same cause of death, a stroke. Julia and John Tyler, separated by decades in age, now buried next to each other in Richmond's Hollywood Cemetery, reunited after 27 years apart. He rode in front of his own lines to familiarize himself with the ground and the people on the ground, and it turned into his last ride. So the Confederates did what they should. They opened fire on the woods to clear their front. They fired two volleys, something in the area of 900 bullets. Deep in the woods, deep in the shadows, nobody ever saw Stonewall Jackson. Nobody ever heard Stonewall Jackson. The 18th North Carolina Infantry fired into the woods. They never dreamed Stonewall Jackson was out there. It was May 2nd, 1863. His first words were, that's wildfire. It's wildfire, sir. Uh, he recognized instantly that he had been struck down by the mistaken fire of his own men. Everything changed for the Confederates on that Virginia night. The mighty stone wall began to crumble. Jackson was struck twice in his left arm, one bullet penetrating very high, about three inches below the shoulder, and it caught the bone in the arm square and just shattered it. A second bullet hit his left arm below the elbow, and it passed diagonally through his forearm, coming out at his wrist. And then a third bullet probably deflected off a tree first and lost some of its velocity. It hit him in the palm of his right hand, and while it goes th through the thinnest part of the anatomy, it was the only bullet that stayed inside Jackson's body. This is the story of the death of Stonewall Jackson, a Confederate general well known as Robert E. Lee's second in command. We continued our conversation with Frank O'Reilly, lead historian at the Fredericksburg Spotsylvania National Military Park. He really knows how to tell a story. It makes our job that much easier. We hope you enjoy. After Jackson was wounded by friendly fire, soldiers rushed towards him with a stretcher to get him to a field hospital as fast as possible. 
in their haste they moved under Union artillery fire and one of the stretcher bearers was wounded and they dropped Jackson's stretcher. Jackson wound up landing on his left arm, his wounded arm, and it further fractured the bone in his upper arm right down to the elbow. Jackson's arm may have been able to have been patched prior to that, but now the arm was destroyed. Worse, it had cut the arteries and Jackson was losing a profound amount of blood. But once Jackson reached Confederate lines, a doctor whose name Richmonders may recognize came to his side. Dr. Hunter Holmes McGuire, the medical director of Jackson's Corps, and one of the great iconic doctors of the 19th century, certainly one of the great pioneers of medicine. The VA hospital in Richmond bears McGuire's name today. He said Jackson came within minutes of bleeding to death. They quickly hurried him off to a field hospital and had him there within an hour, which is excellent because we know the first hour is vital to survival today. We even call it the golden hour. Things looked grim, and doctors seemed content to let Jackson just sit there wounded for hours. And that seems mystifying, except Hunter McGuire explains that Jackson had lost so much blood up to that point that they were struggling to even find his pulse. So that leads us to speculate that Jackson lost over half his blood, and his blood pressure had dropped that appreciably. To give him an anesthetic at that point may have driven him right into shock. And without anesthetic, doctors refused to start surgery. But Jackson started to react, even answering simple questions. McGuire decided it was their best chance to save his life. They administered a very light dose of, of chloroform, and then extracted a ball from his right hand, and upon examining his left arm, realized that it was beyond saving. Uh, they had to amputate his entire left arm, cutting it off one inch above the highest wound, or just two inches below the shoulder. After surgery, Jackson was carted some 27 miles to a Confederate supply base known as Guinea Station on the Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac Railroad. Ostensibly, the doctors were hoping to just link up with the railroad and evacuate Jackson to Richmond. But Union Cavalry, which had departed Hooker's army at the outset of the Chancellorsville campaign on a deep sweeping raid into the Confederate rear, suddenly made its presence felt by cutting the RFP Railroad just before Jackson could leave. They cut the, uh, the line somewhere near Ashland, Virginia, and as a result, uh, nothing was getting in or out of Guinea Station or out of, in or out of Richmond. The line was paralyzed. Temporary field hospitals were set up and houses were transformed from places of comfort into hellish scenes full of screams, blood, and death, as the wounded had nowhere else to go. But Jackson wasn't just another wounded man. He was a revered general. A hospital tent in the middle of a field just wasn't going to cut it. So with him, they improvised. They went to the Fairfield Plantation, Thomas Coleman Chandler, and asked for a place for Jackson. They agreed upon using an outbuilding or an office on the plantation. Mrs. Chandler quickly had it converted into a rustic cottage and Jackson was brought in there on the evening of May 4th, 1863. 
And it was there that things started to take a turn for the better. Jackson began to regain his strength. Within two days, he was even badgering Dr. McGuire about how soon he could return to active duty. Always a good sign. More good news came when uh, they realized the damage to the railroad had been fairly negligible. Uh, it was easily repaired, and operations would resume on May 7th. So Jackson was slated to come to Richmond that day. Unfortunately, uh, that never happened. At 1 o'clock in the morning on May 7th, just hours before he was scheduled to come to Richmond, Stonewall Jackson collapsed. And the wounds that came from his comrades were not necessarily the reason why. In pneumonia. It overwhelmed him in very short order. It literally broke his body instantly. Dr. McGuire was awakened and upon examining Jackson realized that what he was looking at wasn't the initial phase of pneumonia, but rather a very far advanced stage of pneumonia. We now recognize what McGuire recognized then, and that is we got the story backwards. We always talked about Jackson as being a wounded man who got sick and eventually died, but it turns out Jackson was a sick man who got wounded, and that's what put him in such a dire circumstance. Turns out before he was even hit by friendly fire, reports from the field show he was incredibly ill. Men were dropping from heat stroke on his flank march, and yet he was bundled in every bit of clothing he owned, five layers of clothing, including a, a heavy lacquered canvas raincoat on a day when there's bright sunshine and a full moon. There's no reason to wear a raincoat until, unless you're trying to stay warm. People had noted that Jackson was suffering from a bad cold or a bad flu, a high fever. One soldier wrote that the general was so ill he was unfit for command and could barely sit his horse and had no business being on the battlefield. But after he was shot, his body focused on the shock and trauma of gunshot wounds and an amputated arm. Jackson's body literally shut down. Doctors like Hunter McGuire are looking at a wounded man, not a sick man, and that's who they treated. As Jackson recovered and regained his strength, he was strong enough to travel to Richmond, he was strong enough to badger Hunter McGuire about restoring command. It also meant that he was strong enough to let the trauma subside. Jackson could show you the true nature of his health again, but it had already, behind the scenes, run its, its gamut. So we weren't looking at the initial phase of pneumonia. Hunter McGuire was looking at the final phase of pneumonia. There's no cure for pneumonia in 1863. The doctor refused to accept that. He brought in doctors left and right, even sending for civilian specialists on pneumonia from Richmond to join him. Within the next 24 hours, he had a team of five doctors working with Jackson. At one point, the general even commented saying, so many doctors, you must think my case is serious. It was. More important than any doctor, was one more person who came to Guinea Station at that time, and that was Mrs. Jackson. Marianna Jackson was in Richmond when she got the news that her husband was shot. She immediately wanted to be by his side, but she couldn't leave because of all the railroad problems. Finally, after train service was restored on May 7th, she made for Guinea Station. 
arriving just hours after Jackson had collapsed, she's really a marvelous indicator of how quickly the disease took hold. She found him so debilitated that at first he failed to even recognize her when she came in. Walking into a crisis like that, Mrs. Jackson opted to stay in the room with him and help minister to him for the next three days. It was a fairly harrowing experience. And Jackson's decline was not a steady downfall. Uh, he would rally and lose ground, rally and lose more ground. He would be very lucid, easy to communicate with. And then he would slip into delirium or almost into a coma just to go through the cycle again and again. This vicious cycle was captured in the writings of a staff officer named James Power Smith. He sat down on May 9th and wrote to his sister that the general has been sinking during the morning. But before he could finish the sentence, he changed his mind. But he's doing better now, the doctors think. Jackson could change so abruptly he could make a person change his mind, literally in the middle of a written sentence. Smith didn't know it, but Jackson only had 27 hours to live. That last day was May 10th, 1863. A very quiet Sunday in the camp surrounding Guinea Station. The doctors went in early and examined Jackson and realized that he was showing the worst symptom yet, uh, exhaustion. He didn't have the energy to survive and his body was already shutting down. When they realized this, they escorted Mrs. Jackson outside to inform her, but didn't dare tell Jackson. Uh, nobody wanted to provoke the general in his final hours. Mrs. Jackson saw things a lot differently. She wanted the general to have time to prepare himself. And when the doctors refused to tell him, she did. Mariana Jackson did it in a remarkable fashion. She actually knelt beside her husband's bed and broke the news by posing it as a question asking if it was the will of your Heavenly Father to be with him this day, would you acquiesce? She had to repeat the question several times before Jackson was roused enough to answer, I'd prefer it. Shortly afterwards, Jackson asked Dr. McGuire directly if what his wife said was true. The doctor said yes. He was surprised at Jackson's response. They had anticipated him being upset, angry. He relaxed. In fact, he smiled at everyone. And all he said was simply, good, that's good. It's all right. In that instant, Jackson not only understood what was happening to him, but accepted what was happening to him. And we can make a case embraced what was happening to him. O'Reilly says that acceptance seemed to have a lot to do with Jackson's faith. Jackson was a deacon in the Presbyterian faith with a very strong high Calvinistic ideal of predestinationalism. Everything has its course plotted for it for a greater purpose. And this was his purpose. He was never one for challenging it, but to accept it. Jackson confessed to one of his staff officers, a man named Sandy Pendleton, that May 10th was a Sunday and that it had been his desire through life that when he died, he wished to die on the Sabbath what he considered the most beautiful and holy day of the week. For him, May 10th isn't a punishment, it's a reward, it's a vindication of his faith. He had asked for a Sunday and this was his. With that in mind, Jackson tried to keep his mind sharp, as close to the end as possible, just to witness this event. But that was a battle that even Stonewall Jackson couldn't win. 
It was the early afternoon of May 10th, and Jackson was close to death. The fever had taken hold of him. Painkillers had coursed through his, his body. Uh, delirium cut his reality into very, very short spout uh, until about an hour, maybe an hour and a half before the end, when Jackson slipped entirely into delirium and didn't return. Uh, he started to ramble quite a bit, uh, talking very freely, sometimes barely audible as a whisper, other times just booming at the top of his lungs. According to the staff officers and the doctors and Mrs. Jackson, he was reliving the last two years of his life. And they could pick out distinct moments based off of what he was saying. It would be simple moments in time, like dinner conversations, even prayers with staff officers, and quiet moments that he had with his wife were revealed to everyone in the room. All the scenes came back to one point, and that was the battle at Chancellorsville. At those moments, Jackson would become extremely animated. He'd start shouting commands, calling on various officers like General A.P. Hill to press forward Hill, cut them off from the U.S. forward, pass the infantry to the fore, calling on various staff officers, some of them right there beside his bed, like Sandy Pendleton. Uh, he called on him repeatedly, had Pendleton see to it, had Pendleton take care of that. At one point he became upset, where is Pendleton? Calm down, ah, Pendleton, I want you to see if there's any high ground between us and the river. As he worked his way through a litany of staff officers, Jackson became very worked up, uh, very impatient, very pert. Uh, he started thrusting himself upward out of the bed in an upward fetal position, straining every fiber of his being. It was unnerving to see. And Dr. Hunter McGuire did something unexpected. He admitted that while Jackson was his patient uh, and he was the medical director of the Corps, Jackson was also his friend. And McGuire was only 27 years old. Jackson was more than a friend, he was a mentor. And he couldn't bear to see this. And he left the room. He left Jackson to the other doctors. The once mighty general continued to thrash around a sight you can only imagine to be horrifying for those around him. As he shouted out, tell Major Hawks, he abruptly stopped. And at that moment, just completely transformed. He relaxed. He sank into his bed, uh, was quiet for a moment, and then startled everyone by smiling. It was a particularly striking smile. One of the staff officers said that it was a smile of ineffable sweetness. Thomas Stonewall Jackson's time had come. And in a very light voice, Jackson whispered, let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Now history and Hollywood have conspired to have Jackson expire on the last syllable. The reality was much different. Jackson lingered. We don't know how long, five minutes, 10 minutes perhaps, uh, but we do know that at one point, uh, there was a doctor on one side of the bed named Robert Coleman and Mrs. Jackson on the other side of the bed. And Mrs. Jackson just plaintively asked, doctor, isn't there anything more you can do for him? And Coleman responded, sadly, madam, we've done all that men can do. But just hearing Mrs. Jackson's voice, the general's eyes fluttered open for a moment and then slowly closed and then he was gone. Stonewall Jackson had died at Guinea Station on the afternoon of May 10, 1863 at 3.15. He had survived his wounds 
only by eight days. A week after the Confederates beat the odds and took Chancellorsville, their second-in-command, the revered Stonewall Jackson, was dead, killed by the combination of pneumonia and the blind fire of his own forces. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you, Digital Director Kate Albright, for always being my personal ray of sunshine. Who am I kidding? She's more like Edgar Allan Poe, who we told you about in episode one. (laughs) And to executive producer Colton Weekly, who is so thankful I gave him a break from producing the four and five o'clock news for nearly a week in April to get episodes three, four, and five done. We crammed. And thanks to our guest this week, Secretariat Tourism Manager Leanne Layden with the Meadow Event Park, photojournalist Dan Hefner, who helped us get that interview, and Frank O'Reilly, lead historian at the Fredericksburg Spotsylvania National Military Park. Next week on Episode 4. Lincoln says, go. Send it all. Everything we got. The strongest, the craziest, the weirdest. (laughs) Believe me, there's some weird. Send them all. I want them all going up there. I want them to take Richmond right now. The Union went all in, up the James. But a strategy dating back thousands of years helps protect the jewel of the Confederacy. That's a crazy story. Plus, a Virginian literally stuck in the middle of some U.S. and Soviet spy games. And... We can at least, on one occasion, put her in the Confederate White House doing a little bit of spy work. We piece together the newly uncovered, winding tale of a slave in Richmond who put her life on the line to help the Union cause. There are so many connections that we can make between the past and present. And the past really influences how we we think and act today. That's next week on episode four. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday. Monday.